Uh, so we have good news and bad news for you this morning. Good news is we are going to finish the series uh, that Brian has faithfully brought us through. And then we'll be ready to start some other series in the future. The bad news is you've reached the bottom of the barrel and that I'm standing up here. So appreciate your prayers. It's been, been a, a few minutes since I've, I've been up here to do this. Uh, nevertheless, uh, let's get started in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning because we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for our salvation. Father, as we consider how to study the Bible this morning, I pray that most of all that we wouldn't take discouragement, Lord. There are lots of things to look through and lists of things to do and uh, so many things to check off lists, but Father, ultimately it's your Holy Spirit who indwells us that illumines scripture and you've given us biblically qualified elders. You've given us teachers to expound the word of God. And we have confidence that everything that we need for life and godliness is within the pages of your word. Faithful saints through generations have shed their blood so that we can hold your scripture in our hands. And so we confess this morning that we desire uh, to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a hunger and thirst for devouring the word of God that we may draw closer to you in holiness and that can, we could be used more greatly in service. Thank you also for preserving uh, Brian Beamer. Um, horrible accident a few days ago, Lord, that could have been so much worse. And you're just so gracious that he's with us this morning. We just pray for complete healing, that he would be fully restored to health after this incident. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you look at uh, the last, kind of the last uh, leaf of your handout, it's kind of a review of all the classes that have been held so far about how to study the Bible. And if we just uh, kind of hit the highlights of that, the first couple of weeks were focused on the inductive study method. So what are some things that we learned about the inductive study method? What, is that, what does that even mean? What is that method of Bible study refer to? I'm, I'm more than willing to just stare at you. Well, what does the inductive study method entail for those of you who, who took notes? Yeah. Make observations. What else? Meditate. Okay. Yeah, try, trying to be careful to let what's in Scripture guide your thoughts and how you piece together doctrine, how you put together the narrative, and trying not, trying as best as we can not to bring our narrative to the text or our worldview to the text. It's hard to do, though, isn't it? All of us were raised. Um, if you were blessed to be raised by godly parents and you grew up in a particular church, then you kind of have a worldview baked into you, and it's very hard uh, to kind of shuck that off and be completely neutral. And I think if we're all honest, it's not really possible for us to be completely neutral. But we can ask for the Lord to help us, help us to not be firmly entrenched in things that are not true, because ultimately we want to understand what's true about the Word. Uh, the third class was about studying the Old and New Testaments. So what was significant to you in the series about 
what we talked about in studying the Old and New Testaments. What's the distinction between those two? Why is it important to understand that? It's going to be a long class. Just give me something. Give me one thing. Context, what was that? Of a covenant, okay. You can see covenants in Scripture, understanding how those apply through biblical history, and, and you can understand there's a difference between the Old and the New Testament. I think it should be obvious to us, we're not going to rehearse it, but there, there's some very significant differences in the Old Testament and the New Testament about salvation history between the two, for example. And then week four, we called talked about genres, biblical genres. What are some examples of biblical genres? History? Wisdom literature? Okay, what else? Prophecy? Yep, letters, epistles. And there are different types of things in the scriptures, whether it's a narrative, it's telling a story, and you've already mentioned there, there's prophetic literature that has highly symbolic and vivid language uh, that we have to spend more time contemplating and deciding what real thing that this imagery refers us to. And then the last class that Brian covered last week had to do with using commentaries and other Bible study tools. Uh, what did we learn about how to use and select commentaries, or are there any pitfalls in using commentaries? Yeah. Sorry, sir. Yeah, use them last. Um, I'm sh sure some of you have fallen into the same pitfall. If you, if you have a good study Bible, study Bibles are very faithful to put commentary kind of right under the text, and if you're not very careful in your Bible reading, you know, as soon as you run into something that sounds the least bit kind of strange, you immediately look down and see, well, what does this person have to say about that? So that you don't really have to spend any time thinking through it or praying through it. And why would that be a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another significant pitfall that Brian touched on last week was really true is if you just read the commentary, right, you're, you're faithful to read the commentary after reading the scriptures and focusing on reading that commentary, then the, I think the best that's going to happen is you're going to be, you're going to think exactly like the person who wrote the commentary. Um, now, if, if, that, if that was your intent, I guess, okay, but just like has already been said, it's, it's helpful. Those are, those are helps, what other people have searched the scriptures and found for themselves. There's no doubt that they're helpful to us, but they can, if we're not careful, be a hindrance to the study of the Bible. Now, I, th I think all of us realize uh, if you come to Crossway Bible Church and other churches like us, you know that we don't advocate, you know, you take your Bible into a dark closet and the Holy Spirit is going to tell you everything that scripture interprets. That's not... Um, how the word of God is illumined into our hearts. Um, you have to read the Bible. You can't sleep with it under your pillow and 
the important thing about scripture to understand is as a Christian, if you're really a Christian, you've repented of your sins, the Holy Spirit indwells you, then there is a hunger um, no matter how it ebbs and flows over time. It's a hunger for the word of God. Why do you think that is? Why, why are we compelled to read the scriptures as Christians? Yeah, Jesse, we want to know the truth. And we need to be confident that the truth is in scripture. So how can we know that? Um, I think maybe Greg touched on this a few weeks ago, talking about the different attributes or properties of Scripture. Can you think of any of those broad categories of Scripture? Sometimes we call them the attributes of Scripture. Um, Reformation ideas about how we how we approach Scripture and what its properties are. The authority of Scripture. Inerrancy, right, which flows from its authoritative properties. What else? What else is true about Scripture? Sufficiency. Yeah. Yeah, we don't need Scripture and warm fuzzies from the Holy Spirit. We don't need Scripture and private interpretation or, you know, Jesus speaking to us or God told me. Everything that God told us is in Scripture. That is a distinctive of Crossway Bible Church, a distinctive of any church that takes the Word of God seriously. A couple of other things that we can be confident in about Scripture from its properties and where it comes from. We've already talked about it's authoritative, and from that flows inerrancy. Patrick said it's sufficient. What are a couple of other things that are true about Scripture? Yeah, perspicuity, the clarity of Scripture. We can be confident that when we approach the pages of Scripture, we don't need a private interpretation. We don't need a separate priest uh, to filter the Word of God to us. And moreover, if someone is searching for salvation, someone is searching for the true God, um, everything that's necessary is, can be read there. There's no secret code to Scripture there's no Bible code. You don't need a decoder ring to figure out what the Bible is actually telling you. Everything that we need as Christians is there for life and godliness and to be a thoroughly equipped for every good work. But if someone is lost and they approach Scripture, they're taught from Scripture, they're witnessed to by Scripture, everything that they need for salvation is clearly, now it's more clearly uh, there in some passages than others, but in the whole uh, totality of scripture it is sufficient and clear enough for God's special revelation that we know how to rightly uh, be reconciled to him and how to live for him and that's the clarity of scripture very important and there's one more if anybody remembers real quick that's commonly taught about it starts with an N the necessity of scripture Scripture is necessary. It's not secondary to what the, what the church thinks or the magisterium thinks. It is absolutely necessary. And I think another distinctive of ourselves and of like-minded churches is that everything that we think, everything that we understand to be true about Scripture is self-attested by Scripture. That means we don't come to the Bible from outside thoughts about 
Well, let's think about what's, what's true of Scripture outside of it and then search the Scriptures to figure out if what we thought was correct. The Scripture is actually not silent on all of those things that we've talked about. So flowing from the authority of Scripture, and this, this is kind of something that Jesse talked about, we want to understand the truth. Flowing from the authority of Scripture is the truthfulness of Scripture. These are the words of God. We're, if these are the words of God, we're compelled to believe them and obey them. Believing and obeying Scripture is basically its equivalent right, to believing and obeying God. If these are God's words, God's words are true, then obedience to Scripture is obedience to God. We should take it very seriously. And for that to have any meaning at all, Scripture has to be true. There can't be parts of Scripture that we can put in a category, well, I doubt that this happened. Uh, here's another category of Scripture that this might have happened. Because then it just becomes meaningless and nonsense. So in order to orient ourselves about the truthfulness of Scripture, it's helpful to understand the truthfulness of God. Let's be reminded of the character of God and his truthfulness. Are there any, any passages? You, don't, you can murder the passage. You don't have to quote it. What does the Bible have to say about God's character as to whether or not God is true and tells the truth? Okay? That God be true and every man a liar? What else comes to mind? There are two or three passages that are pretty clear on this. Yes, sir. Yeah, what about um, God is not a man that he should, what, lie? That's a pretty significant, striking contrast. People lie. People have the capacity to lie. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Um, and sometimes you think in the, in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 6, kind of you can pick up really nice gleanings of truth from these phrases that aren't really the central theme of what's being taught, but it's just truth baked in there anyway. Hebrews 6 talks about these two immutable things in which it is, number one, impossible for God to lie. And we learn that it's just not in God's character to lie. And so again, if we have to weed out what's true about Scripture and what's not true, and then what we are not really certain about that could be true or could be false, then we couldn't have any confidence that Scripture is the Word of God because we know that God is God always tells the truth. Moreover, the Bible says, and maybe this is what you were thinking about, um, Mark, in John 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says to sanctify them by your truth. He says, your word is what? Truth. So it's interesting. He didn't just say your word is true, and it is, but he actually says your word is truth. It's not just true. It's truth itself. And to me, when I look over this content as I was preparing, um, and I guess I never would have thought this even five years ago, but we, we live in a time, and we don't often talk about culture and current events, but they press in upon us all the time. We live in a time when people don't know what objective truth is. I mean, objective truth is kind of a, it's, it's saying thing that's kind of redundant. You think, well, well, the truth is the truth, but the truth is being challenged in all fronts of culture and society. It's helpful to have something that you can have confidence in that never changes. 
God never changes. His word is always true. Um, you see rebellion all around us. People rebel, rebel against God's institutions. People re rebel against the creation order. But we don't have to be confused, and the world doesn't have to be confused, because the answers about how things are ordered, how things should be, what God's intention was in creation, is already in Scripture. And we know that it is objective truth. Objective truth is true in and of itself. It's not subject to interpretation. So we believe that to be true about the Word of God. The Word of God is true just as God is truth. So sometimes it's helpful, before we go into the content of this lesson, I think you can either grab all the verses out of the Bible and kind of list them in order and say, well, this is what we think is true about Scripture. And that's helpful to do, but sometimes it takes several pages while you're trying to, to make a list of all the Scripture references that are true about the Bible. Um, sometimes it's helpful to just kind of pull those together into a statement or a couple of sentences or a paragraph. And you may think of those as creeds or confessions. We call them statements of faith. I think there's, there's a pretty good one um, that's actually pretty recent that I'll read to you. And it talks about inerrancy. And see if, see if you think this is what Scripture teaches. We teach the Scriptures are absolutely inerrant being perfectly truthful and completely without error in the original documents. Therefore, the scriptures are infallible and cannot lead someone astray from the truth. Does that sound like something we would affirm? How about we teach that scriptures are fully authoritative, having the right to direct the actions of all people and of the church. And as God's words, they're to be believed and obeyed at every point. Is that something we would affirm? Good. Where do we find that? What am I reading? That's from the Crossway Bible Church, What We Believe. How about, I bet Greg knew that. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And, and you know, the other confidence that I have and that I know how old the church is how old salvation is, the continuity of God unfolding himself in history. I don't have to, I really don't have to be concerned that Greg is going to dig up anything new that we couldn't read in the Chicago Statement of Faith or the Philadelphia Confession or the 1689 Confession um, or the Westminster Confession. If Greg finds anything new that hasn't been discovered before, I'd be very concerned. So it's, it's often helpful to look back through history at those old creeds and confessions, but it's also nice to put them in our modern vernacular, our modern tongue, and I think it's done very well here. Any attempt, it goes on to say in our statement of faith, our what we believe statement, any attempt to supplement or improve the word of God with the traditions and wisdom of men or with claims of God speaking directly or revealing anything new should be viewed as a direct attack on the sufficiency of scripture. How about that? Them are meddling words. Because now we're, now we're talking about, well, what about what I feel in my heart? What about the warm fuzzy I had today? And these are not, they're not things to, to joke about or make light of. We've lost good, dear brothers and sisters uh, to, to the points of that kind of doctrine. Are we going to believe that the Holy Spirit continually speaks to us day by day, minute by minute? Or do we believe that God's word is forever settled and that his canon is closed and that everything we need really sufficient for our life is in scriptures? And that's a distinctive 
of this church, a distinctive of every church that holds a high view of God and a high view of his word. So I'm very thankful for that at Crossway. Well, look at your handout, and now you get to talk again. We're going to talk about, this is the last lesson, kind of summarizing how we take all these tools that we've learned about, if those tools were helpful to you, and how do we study two different types of passages. One of the types of passages we'll talk about first are studying the Bible uh, that has portions of it are difficult. So I don't think anybody would would disagree there are difficult passages in the Bible. And then another type of thing we want to talk about is passages that are just so well-worn to us, ingrained in us, we grew up with that now we're kind of bored with them, if, if we can say such a thing, or we just assume out of hand even what it means. We're tempted not to really contemplate what they mean because they're just a familiar to us. So let's talk about, first of all, difficult passages. And so I'm going to ask you to name some difficult passages. Now, we're not going to write them all down, but name some difficult passages in the Bible. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11 is difficult. Why? That's yeah, interesting. You talk about head coverings. Brian, Brian mentioned that very thing when I talked to him. He said, maybe this, is, this would take too long to talk about head coverings. But yeah, that's hard to talk about. It's, it's hard to think about. You're trying to figure out, does that just apply to that culture? How does that apply to this culture? What is the time this truth is telling me? That's a really good one. Really good one, Steve. What else? Okay, the, the, the idea that uh, the devil is God's devil and God ordained evil. It's a difficult thing. What else? Okay. God's not willing that any should perish, right? That all men should come to repentance. God is not, not slow as men count slowness, but is long-suffering. If God is, if God is wi- not willing that any should perish, how come people are perishing? It's a good one. What else? Yeah, thanks for bringing that one up. <laughs> Baptism for the dead. That's an interesting tidbit in Scripture that we're still scratching our heads over. What else? Okay. Yeah. Now we kind of bring these mo- modern things to Scripture and we're fighting over, well, I, I found this manuscript. What do you think about that? Is this... Do we go with God's providence and scripture or do we go with the latest scholarship and, and we are concerned about that? What else? I know you have hard passages. These can be passages that not everybody thinks are hard. It's okay. Hebrews 6. Yeah, the, the passages and, and others in Hebrews that make us very uncomfortable. I know that Greg has already preached through that, but those are tough. Passages that sound very much like uh, someone who is saved somehow not being saved or somehow losing salvation or being condemned, ultimately condemned. So we have to think through those things. How does that fit within what the rest of Scripture says? That's a good one. What else? Okay. 
Yeah, all, and all those imprecatory songs, people, I have trouble with those too, I freely admit it. Um, what is the balance of praying for enemies versus praying for their kids to be dashed against rocks? <laughs> uh, those, are, those are tough passages, and we have, to, we have to understand the context of them and understand what timeless truths are God telling us here too about his justice. Very good. What else? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and some people get really, really torn up about this and they kind of think that there's a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament when we know that's not the case. So that's a clue to us that we, we need to dig deeper to understand that. So let's think about some of the reasons. We already mentioned some of the reasons some of these are difficult or can be difficult. If you look at your handout there in point number A, there are three things that are listed. Number one is the culture gap. I think we can, we can understand how the culture gap is a real issue. We didn't live uh, during these biblical times, and their culture was different. So what, what should that help us to understand about that? What, what can we do about that, I guess, is a better question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there are, there are other things that are not, not the Bible that are helpful. Bible study helps. It's helpful to understand the culture of that region and what they thought about things like covenants and how they reacted and behaved as a society. Very good. Helps outside the Bible, helping us to learn about that period in history can be helpful. The second one, how about that one? Apparent contradictions. We mentioned some of those, right? How about the apparent contradiction of God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, God doesn't want anybody to perish, but yet people are perishing without coming to saving faith in Jesus. Um, I, think, I think some great preachers, one or two, said in the past that all the great truths of Scripture ultimately kind of end up in a paradox like this. Whether it's the Trinity, I mean, we think we understand the Trinity as well as we can understand it, but ultimately it's still kind of one of those things that bakes your mind. God is one, God is one nature, three persons. That's ultimately something that's difficult to understand because we're human. Other apparent contradictions in the Bible that Ryan brought up. How about the fact that um, there's evil here. We know that God is sovereign. He doesn't, if God didn't want evil to exist, evil wouldn't exist. So that seems to be an apparent contradiction in that people say, well, God is love. God is good. How can God ordain evil? How does God use evil? Those are not easy things to wrestle with in scripture and you can really go down some really wrong ways of thinking if, if you don't have careful guidance in thinking through that any other apparent contradictions that we haven't talked about yeah Yeah, that's a good one, Patrick. Yeah. Patrick says that scripture is clear. God has never lost anyone. 
Um, none have fallen away except the son of perdition was ordained from the beginning that he do that. Then why do we see all these things around us? Uh, why do we see so many deconversion stories? Why do we see so many people we put, we put our hope and um, confidence in who fell by the wayside, who are now apostatizing? It's a good one. Anything else? That's a really good one, Robert. When I teach the children's Sunday school, we often talk about that very thing. God's passion for his glory. And why is it okay for us? We can't be jealous. We can't be proud. But because of God's ultimate worth, he can behave like that. He can be zealous for his glory. He can say he's a jealous God. He actually deserves all that stuff. It's a very good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That's James, the book that Martin Luther called a strawy book. It's full of straw. Don't want to wrestle with it. But there's there's an apparent contradiction just reading it on the surface. You have to dig a little deeper to understand what it means to be justified before God and to be justified before men because of that justification. That's a good one. Anything else? Those are really good examples. Thank you for, for saying all of those. And then third, third it says there's the mystery. What do you think that means? Is there anything mysterious in the Bible? Is there anything that will go to our grave not understanding? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. There are some things that we just can't know. Uh, some of those things because God doesn't want us to know, but probably most of those things because we're just not capable of knowing it. Or if we did know it, we would just disintegrate or something like that. He really is that high above us. His ways are not our ways. So there's genuine mystery in the Bible, things that are impossible to understand. Very good. So the next thing on our outline is four principles that who wrote this study from Capitol Hill Bible Church recommends to tackle those types of difficult passages. And I, I think they're generally, generally applicable to any approach that we take to Scripture and studying the Bible. And so when you look at these, you know, I, I would encourage you, especially if you're, if you're a younger Christian, you know, don't come to this all um, up in arms and fretting that, man, if I don't do everything that they teach me in Sunday school about how to study the Bible, I'm just, I'm just no good. Um, some, some of these things are meant to be internalized over time. Some of these things are the next step in you digging deeper into the scriptures. Um, 
I don't want anyone to be discouraged because when they read through a list like this, you say, man, I don't do this. Or if I do it, if I do try to do it, I stink at it. Because the most important thing for you to do is to read the word of God. That is the first importance, to actually read the word of God. But here are some things that could be helpful in our approach to the word of God that would be a really good help to us as we try to tackle things like apparent contradictions that we try to approach things that seem hard to understand. And the first one is, on our list of four principles, to pray. Why would it be important to pray before we read the Word of God? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So much of the Bible, of course, the things of God are spiritually appraised. They're spiritually discerned. So if we think about the gap to us and our approach to the Bible, it's not primarily an intellectual gap. Although you do have to read the Word of God, it has to enter into your mind before you internalize it. It's not primarily an intellectual barrier. It is, it's a spiritual, a moral one. there are a couple of interesting passages that talk about that very thing. So these will be familiar to you. I know you've you've heard, heard both of these. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. This is this is the full context of what Patrick just said nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. This is 1 Corinthians um, 2, chapter 14, and into the 15th verse. But he who is spiritual judges all things. So things are spiritually appraised, and he who is spiritual judges all things. goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to whom? To those who are perishing. Right? There's... There is a moral, a spiritual stance that becomes a blinder to the truth of Scripture. Because, it goes on to say, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 2, a little earlier in the chapter, right before what we first read, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God, why? That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Was it God's intent to hide his revelation from us when he saves us? It's not. And then the psalmist prays in 119, that whole chapter there focusing on the word of God and the law. Doesn't he say, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law? It implies there's, there's something spiritual. There's a spiritual type of veil there that we need God to illumine for us. So prayer, who is going to do that? That, that kind of leads me into the focus of prayer. That's really a prayer there in Psalm 119. Open my eyes so that I can see wondrous things from your law. 
God's spirit has spoken through God's word. So it takes God's spirit to understand and apply it to ourselves. Now, it doesn't, doesn't take away from the fact that if we're a lost person and we're either being taught from or preached to or we take our Gideon's Bible out of the nightstand in a hotel room, Scripture is still clear enough that salvation can be found there. It's still clear enough for that. But there are truths of Scripture which are illumined by the Holy Spirit that not being a Christian would be a barrier to. So pray. Pray that God would help you to understand that. Number two, examine the context. Have we talked about context before? Why is context important? What what does it mean to understand the context? What are some questions you ask to understand the context? Sound like quizzing. Who, what, when, where, why? Yeah, so uh, who what? So who wrote the book? Be a helpful thing to understand. Who are they writing it to? Yeah. Yeah. If there's a significant, important historical context and we can place it in history, that would be helpful to know. Um, Some other things about context, which maybe don't just jump out at you, that I thought was helpful in the presentation of the study were, um, I think Brian has talked about these in previous lessons, but what words do you see repeated? What what are the repeated themes in this passage or the repeated words in this passage? Um, how about how does the passage fit structurally in the context of the rest of the epistle or the rest of the narrative? So context, so much easier to fit the puzzle piece into a puzzle if you can at least look at the, you're trying to look at the puzzle box and understand where it fits in. Which quadrant am I in to help me make sense of this? Number three is the principle of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Now, that's, that's a great Reformation idea. Scripture interprets Scripture. I think that flow from, from which flows inductive Bible study, the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. It's the best fence. It's the best thing that creates boundaries for us not to go astray. So, the author of this study suggest a couple of approaches to that about how, how we actually let Scripture interpret Scripture. Number one, it says you need to diagnose the difficulty. It's kind of putting yourself in the place of a physician. You're trying to diagnose what's wrong. You're asking yourself questions such as, what's confusing about this passage? Um, you're just presenting yourself with questions that you can then dig a little deeper and try to find other context for other relevant passages for. Which leads us into number two, finding those relevant passages. What kind of passages would you look for if you're studying a a passage of scripture that seems unfamiliar or strange or contradictory? What would you do? What sort of relevant passages are you looking for? Similar wording, Patrick? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, maybe there's a, maybe there's a kind of a word you haven't come across before. Maybe you're looking at this word propitiation and you'd like to figure out what, what are some helpful things I could look at? And maybe a good Bible dictionary would be helpful there. Um, how about parallel passages? Are there parallel passages in Scripture? Particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, but also elsewhere. Right? You're, you're reading this passage, and I do that in the children's Sunday school. We'll read a Gospel account, and I'll say, hey, this Gospel account is also in Mark and Luke. Let's take a look at those and see what else we can glean from this passage. Because often, now you have these multiple perspectives talking about the same thing, and now you fill in missing details. It's the totality of all of that together that helps to, helps to illumine what's actually going on there. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I remember doing this. I should read my Bible. You ever done that? <laughs> like God, God is going to point my finger to the passage I need to read. But the risk of doing that, especially as you get older and you start to, to put more weight upon the things that Scripture tells you, if you start reading these verses out of their context, you can really go down some strange rabbit holes that are not true. And I think that speaks to the importance of how Greg and our other elders like to exposit Scripture. They don't really, they don't do the Charles Spurgeon thing and, and read a verse and exposit that verse we approach it through the context of Scripture. And although it can take a really long time, it's also a really helpful thing to do. And it necessarily prevents us uh, from trying to ignore the rest of that context. It's a good one. And then lastly, it says to synthesize. Now, I had to look this up because I'd never heard it used in that way before. What does it mean to synthesize something? Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, I, th I think the part of it that, that maybe makes it a little bit clearer is you're trying to draw connections. I'm trying to synthesize this passage by drawing connections to passages that are clear. You're trying to interpret the unclear passages with the things that are clear. How do I draw connections to things that I know are true? If I read a passage that says God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, how can I draw connections to the other things that are true about the character of God to help me really understand what we're getting at here? Yep. So trying to create an outline of the passage to put, put it in the proper context and the proper flow. Yeah. Yeah, it probably, I mean, this is, this is kind of an extra biblical observation, but I think we all know, especially if you have kids, and if, 
if you've ever been to school or you ever tried to learn something at work, people learn differently. Not everybody learns the same way. Um, we can follow all these steps. I don't think anybody would argue with prayer, but maybe some of this is, is really not how you're wired and you would focus on one method than another. Um, I mean, maybe a silly example is um, we used to have a trend where we had, we'd give handouts in a sermon and they have blank spaces on them. And I think a lot of people find those really helpful. You kind of follow along with the sermon, you fill those in. For whatever reason, because I'm weird, those have always been incredibly distracting to me. I just despise them. And because people, right, people learn differently, right? My, my focus or my ADHD won't let me look at this piece of paper and, and do a word search while I'm trying to internalize what's being said. So you have to keep in mind what, what is going to be best to help you understand Scripture. Um, and if it's writing an outline, that's fantastic. If you've never, if you've never done what Dan Snyder said, um, I recommend you do it, especially if, you, if you're approaching a new passage and, and you, you genuinely don't know what to do. Well, what's it going to hurt to try to outline it and try to, try to see if that is a better way to internalize what's on the pages of Scripture? <clears throat> but the, the overall principle here is letting Scripture interpret Scripture. Um, there's, there's an interesting quote from Martin Luther. He said, the Holy Scriptures... Um, require a humble reader who shows reverence and fear toward the word of God and who's constantly saying, maybe not audibly, but teach me, teach me, teach me. We're beggars coming to God's table asking him to illumine scripture. So humility. And, and Martin Luther drew that comment really from the fact that the spirit resists the proud. It, it, I don't know why we do this because we're people. It's, it's in our nature but we often come to that, oh yeah, I, I know how to do that. You know, we have pride even when we have no reason to be proud. And that can be a pretty significant barrier to being teachable from the word of God. Um, Luther read the Bible through at least twice every year. Um, he actually made the quote, he said, if you picture the Bible to be a mighty tree and every word a little branch, I have shaken every one of these branches because I wanted to know what it was and what it meant. I think that's, that is the humility and the hunger that kind of reflects that hunger and humility approach to Scripture. Okay. Um, so let's talk about a passage. If you flip over, <clears throat> well, the last thing on here is ask for help. I think that one, that one was obvious. If you get stumped, phone a friend, phone a fellow believer, um, call Greg at three in the morning and ask him, you're really stuck on a passage? No, but our elders, elders, biblically qualified elders, um, have certain expectations for study of the totality of the word of God. And so if you're fellowshipping with, with the pastor, <clears throat> they, don't, they don't mind at all if you will ask them for help. Um, and God has so designed a church like that. We're not meant to be silos, individual people. We're meant to be a body of believers. So definitely ask for help and understand it's available. So the passage on the back of the page here, Matthew 12, and it's got, it's got a bold passage at the bottom of it. <clears throat> and maybe we'll go a little quicker here because 
we're, we're getting close on time. What is this passage talking about? What do you think is weird or difficult about this passage? Does it, what does it talk about? Look at those two highlighted verses. It's talking about the unforgivable sin. Who's ever thought about that? Who knows there is such a thing? They call it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Does it, has that ever bothered you? What bothers you about it? Yeah, what is it? Yeah. Right. I think that's, that's pretty common. That's a, I've done it myself. I think in the continuity of becoming a new believer and trying to internalize scripture, everyone has, has looked at that and you just kind of have a hard stop and say, wait a minute, you mean there's actually a sin that I can do that once it's done, there's no forgiveness for it? So immediately, you, right, you freak out and you wonder, well, have I done this already? Is it possible that I could do this now? <clears throat> so let's look briefly at the context of this, uh, starting in verse 22. It's a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute that they brought before Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the mute man both spoke and saw, right? This undeniable miracle by the Son of God. All the crowds were astounded, and they said, can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself won't stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? But if I, Jesus, by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? And then he'll plunder his house. He who's not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And then the passage is in bold. Therefore I say to you, any sin, <clears throat> any sin or blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. <clears throat> so that's the full context of that passage. Now, if we're going to follow the recommendations that the writer of the study had for us, what would we do first when we come to a passage like this? Pray. Pray. God, I haven't been saved very long. I'm a new Christian. I'm trying to be faithful in praying to you. But I am really distraught right now because I've read something that I don't even know if you're going to listen to me because I might have done this. Right, that may, may be the prayer of, of, a, of a new Christian. And if you're trying to understand what it means, like, okay, I know that I couldn't possibly have done that because I'm still following the Lord Jesus. I'm still repenting of my sin. What does that mean for me? God, will you help me understand it? So pray, absolutely. Second thing. <clears throat> What's the second thing on the outline? To examine the context, okay? So what, what might we do to do that? 
Yeah, don't just read those two verses. Read, read that whole passage and try to understand what's going on there. What are some other things we could do? Go back even farther. Look at that. How about parallel passages? Are there any other parallel passages that talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And it's kind of funny that they use this example in the book, but the, the writer of the study freely admits, well, these two other passages are, this, these are not any clearer than this one is. This is really the most clear passage about the teaching of this, so they probably don't really help you very much. But you can certainly read them in Mark 3 and Luke 12, Jesus talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so the, the author of the study had an interesting idea and I think it is interesting in, in the context so Greg mentioned rewinding a little bit in the passage trying to understand what's going on here um, the author of the study actually recommends looking at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 when Paul thinks back over his life and he says I was a blasphemer I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So when we think about what he's saying there, is that helpful in the context of this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven? What's the first thing that's maybe helpful about reading what Paul says about himself? He says he was a blasphemer, doesn't he? He saw the miracles that were going on at this time and what do you think his opinion of those miracles were? Did he think they were genuine? Did he think they were of God? No. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And then he says, but I received mercy because, because why? I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So there's one nuance to explore in understanding what blasphemy this blasphemy is. And you can kind of go down two interpretive roads with this. You can say that, well, this was, that, this was one time Jesus obviously knew who had committed this unpardonable sin, something that can't be repeated today, or it's probably equally and maybe even a more, even a larger camp that would err on the side of saying, well, it's, it's still true, it's still true and technically can be done, but it kind of distills into the fact that if you are living a life of rebellion against God, then ultimately the sin that, that will be your downfall, that, that will be your condemnation, is the sin of unbelief. So looking at several different passages can help us to try to get a better grip on this. And, and what the author says when he looks at this passage, he says, well, a person who is so hardened against the Holy Spirit never repents and never believes, so necessarily will say that they committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So you can look at parallel passages to try to get a more nuanced approach for what that might mean, or you can do what Greg suggested, and, and that's always a good suggestion. Let's read more of what this gospel is. Let's figure out if what he's actually talking about here 
is something that really can't be repeated because we don't have any Pharisees here. And these are the religious leaders of the Jews who stood up and knew, knew in their hearts that the Messiah was here, but absolutely rebelled against it and shook their fist at it. So, number four, ask for help. Greg, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Brian, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Daddy, Mommy, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And maybe we can't put our, put our thumb on it, okay, it's either this or it's that, but do we know enough about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to help your child who thinks he's blaspheming the Holy Spirit? You think you know enough about it? How would you counsel your son or your daughter who says, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin? What would you say? I would say the fact that you're worried about it means that you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. You're not shaking your fist at the Spirit. You're not blaspheming the Spirit because you are concerned with your spiritual condition and that you might have done this to God. Were the Pharisees concerned about what they thought about the Messiah? No. Their hearts were completely hardened. And so at a minimum, we can glean from the text that, and glean in other passages of the Bible, the one who is coming to God humbly, the one who's concerned about their spiritual condition, is most likely not this person who has committed an unpardonable sin. Because God is rich in mercy. God grants repentance. We can put hope in the character of God and what his word says. All right. It's 10.03. We didn't get to the familiar passage. But when you look through your outline and you see Psalm 23 as a familiar passage, I recommend uh, one that I thought of and I had actually prepared to talk about was John 3.16 as a familiar passage. So for homework, you can look at John 3.16 and I encourage you Number one, find a parallel passage in 1 John that's relevant to John 3.16 and ask yourself what the word so means. God so loved the world. All right, let's pray together before we leave. Father, again, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful that it's clear. And Father, even though we can't understand all mysteries, even though we can't understand everything that's in the word of God, we're confident that we can be fully equipped for every good work. We're confident that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. But Father, to understand that, we need to read it. And so I ask you on behalf of Crossway Bible Church, Father, give us a passion for the Word of God. Give us a hunger for the Word of God that we might search the Scriptures, that we might memorize the Scriptures so that it would be always on our tongue ready to give a defense, ready to give an answer, ready to share the gospel. But Father, we know the word of God. Not only does it, does it convert, not only does it regenerate through the spirit, but it changes our hearts. It makes us more holy. And Father, we long to be like our Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.